Good morning. Before I begin, let me first give you an encouragement. I encourage everyone to um, go back this week and study chapter 9 um, uh, concerning uh, Mephibosheth, which was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. Uh, very important passage. We, we're not going to have a sermon on that. We kind of skipped over that in our sermon series. But it would be a good uh, reflection for everyone to go back and just kind of study that passage uh, and, and, and understand what's happening there, especially in the context of day, today where we're going to be focused in on uh, his low point in David's life, the worst decision he ever made, uh, which I think it's important to realize he's still a believer. He still loves the Lord. He is part of the covenant community. And kind of going back to the last time I preached where we were talking about Joab and Abner and David, and David's kind of the light in the darkness. He is the one who is the faithful Israelite. He never wants to, he never seeks revenge against the house of Saul. Uh, he always multiplies. He is the one that, that represents what God wants. Um, and his kindness to Mephibosheth uh, is a great example of that. A paralytic uh, son of Jonathan who always eats at the king's table. So go back and study that passage. Let's, let's pray. O Lord, open our eyes that we may behold the beauty of thy law. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We live in a voyeuristic culture. We love to peep. Objectifying others is what we do best in the United States. We have the power to look at others and use them for our own pleasure. Pornography controls many lives in our culture these days. We can look at whatever turns us on whenever we want to. Uh, we live in a society also that thrives on comfort. We love to be comfortable we have the most comfortable couches. We have the most comfortable beds. We have the most comfortable vehicles. I mean, we, we, some of us can even, you know, control our, the temperature on our seats in our car. You know, we warm, warm ourselves up as we drive. I mean, can you imagine Peter and Paul driving around the Roman Empire, you know, with their, their seats warming them up as they're doing mission work, you know, compared to Peter and Paul, today's modern missionary, you know, Paul's you know, writing some of his letters from prison uh, where, you know, some pastors are driving to church in extreme comfort to slave and serve the Lord at church. We even have comfort foods. We use food to comfort ourselves when we need comforting that only, you know, that sweet sugar can provide. Instead of using food, for its real purpose, right, which is to fuel us to have a productive life. I'm not even preaching yet. I'm just making observations. This type of culture and society that we live in is a society where we use others for our own pleasure. But David discovered, as many do that live, live this type of lifestyle, David discovered that going down this dark path, a path that has consequences, dire consequences, you know, it is a path 
that is a believer can find forgiveness. A believer can find God's love again when we've made such a terrible mistake. But such actions, they have consequences, trickle-down effect that changes one's entire life. When we get too comfortable, and here's, here's uh, the lesson for today, when we get too comfortable, we give our illicit desires the opportunity to bring us down. And when we go down this path, it leads us to more sin. It leads to pain and suffering. When we do things that God has forbidden, it takes us down a path of destruction. It takes us down a path where we hurt others, not just ourselves, but we hurt our others as well. Today's text is a familiar one. You know, a lot of people, they don't know a lot of stories about David and some of the kings of Israel, but they know David and Bathsheba. It's a familiar one. So let's look at chapter 11. First thing we see is this is a time when kings go out to battle. Okay? Literally, the text says the return, at the return of the year, which would be a reference to the Jewish New Year, spring. And the ESV translates it and explains to us what time of year it was. It was the springtime. It would be the ideal time for kings to go out to battle. It would be the ideal time because the army could march, they could camp, they could fight because the weather would be nice. It would also be a time when now here's the key part, I think. Protecting the crops of Israelite farmers would be very important. Remember all the foreigners around them that they invade. You have the Philistines, you have all the Ammonites, you have all these, these, these uh, other peoples around them, these unbelievers, these you know, pagans. They would be invading, stealing. Uh, this would be the, the important time for David to be out in battle to fight off and protect Israelite property. But we see that's not the case. David seeks to be comfortable. David seeks the comfort of the palace as he strolls about on the roof of his palace. It is when we are most comfortable, isn't it, that we are most vulnerable to temptation. The devil prowls about seeking whom he may devour. It is when we're most comfortable that we are now given the opportunity, our desires are given an opportunity to come alive. David's idleness leads to temptation. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Look at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I think we have it on the screen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Idleness and power lead to sin, to temptation and then sin. And power, what I'm using, in, in ter- in, for David, when you think about David, his power is that he is king, he has the ability to do things that other people don't have the ability to do. But for us, when I use the word power today, I'm thinking about the ability to do things. Our power to go out and, and commit certain sins that we know we shouldn't be doing. In our day and time, 
Nothing is more idle and empowering, I think, than sitting around on our cell phones on social media. As we are so bored and we're just you know, scrolling about, we are now empowered to look at anything we want, to say anything we want, to anybody in the world. Boy, that's empowering, isn't it? As we just sit bored and idle. Leads to temptation, it leads to sin. For Christians, we must understand who we are in Christ and what God expects us to be, what we have been called to be, that our citizenship is no longer here but in heaven. Our Lord tells us, be wise as serpents, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Be wise, be shrewd, because... If you don't, you will fall trapped to temptation. You will be falling the traps. So this verse, my interpretation of this verse is like this. You know, my you know, country boy interpretation. Know where the traps are. Know where the traps are. You, in your life, my, my life, I have certain desires, temptation, you know, certain desires that would lead me to do things like David, right? Some of us have, those, have different desires that lead us into sin. Know where your traps are, because some, one of the wisest things uh, a spiritual director ever told me was the struggles you have now, and it, in my 20s, I didn't really believe this. Right? You think when you get older, you get married, it won't be as bad. Right? Your temptations you have now, you'll struggle with for the rest of your life. Now, some of you older folks can probably testify to that. Right? The, the, the desires, the temptations, the things that bring you down into sin have been things you've struggled with your entire life. And for younger folks, that's an important message. You're never going to be free from temptation. So don't let yourself get too comfortable. Know where the traps are. Know where you're going to fall into temptation. This is so important to being shrewd. For some, for David, as for many men, it, and even women too, it was the desire for the opposite sex. It could be even as a desire for the same sex. One sin of David, a horrible and terrible mistake, leads down a dark path. This lesson shows us how someone who loves God so much and is so committed, I mean, he, he wrote most of the, the prayer book of the Israelites, the Psalms, the Psalter. He wrote most of them. He is, he's the source of so much in the Old Testament, of the, the Davidic covenant. Someone so committed, who loved God so much, can go down a path destructive to himself and those around him. But, here's the good news, there is forgiveness, right? God, the Bible teaches us from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, from the entire scripture, all this false teaching throughout church history about, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than God of the New Testament. no. He's not different. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Old Testament teaches us, the Hebrew Scriptures teach us, just like the New Testament, that God is a God of love who stands ready to forgive. Oh, I need that. A God who loves us and stands in need to forgive. But here's, the, here's what we have to realize from this, from this text. And, and as we go through 2 Samuel, you'll see this, this theme coming up. It all starts here, the downhill cycle in David's life, going down. He's reached the top right now, he's going down. So, 
what we have to understand is there is love and restoration found in the God of Abraham, but there are consequences to impulsive decisions. There are consequences. Uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 with me. Think, I want you to reflect on this verse just for a minute. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. In the law of Moses, here's God's command. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the other nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now here's the key part here. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Why does the law say this? Why does God command this in Deuteronomy? Uh, why did he tell Moses to write this thing down? It's because this is what kings do. They take things. This is what people in power do. They take your money. They take your horses. They take your daughters to be their wives. This is what they do. People in power take things. Why do you think the author of Kings, who wants to really hammer home the fact that the kings are sinners, uh, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, he has, the, especially Solomon, right? Why he lists all the, the things Solomon had. You know, for the simplistic reader, for the sim simpleton, we just look, wow, Solomon has a lot of stuff. Wow, he had a lot of wives. That's not what the author of Kings wants you to realize. He wants you to realize that Solomon, has, his heart has been led away from the Lord. He has now been puffed up. He's got all this stuff. He's got all these women. And now his heart's been led away from the Lord. I mean, why look how many, how many horses Solomon has? There's a reason he does that. It's because of Deuteronomy 17. Now, the reason I'm reading this is because it really shows us what David has done here. He has broken the law in its most basic form. But we have to realize he had already done this because he had already taken several wives when he was at Hebron before he got to Jerusalem and conquered the Jebusite fortress. He had already had several wives. He had already broken the law. Okay? Kings take things. And I think for us, for us, when we are empowered in our culture this day, these days by our freedom, we, we are empowered. When we go and we objectify others and we use others for our pleasure, we are acting like these ancient kings and breaking the law of God. Now let's look at today's, uh, what actually happened in this story I won't take but a few minutes, but I do want to first say, it's kind of like Martin Luther said about the Hebrew and Greek languages. They are the sheath in which the sword of the Spirit is placed. They are the <clears throat> cask in which the jewel of the Word is held. They are the vessel in which the wine, the pure wine of the gospel is held. They are the basket in which the bread of life is held. I think the Hebrew and Greek texts are so important to study when, to, when we preach and 
I was given this task when I was in seminary of studying this passage in the hardest class I ever had. And um, it led me down a different understanding than uh, the way I was raised in understanding this text. And uh, I want to share that with you today. Now, I do want to say that one of my professors once said that there is a special place in hell for uh, people who use Hebrew and Greek and quote it in sermons uh, because, you know, trying to make everybody think they're smart. I'm not going to do any quotes or say anything. But I do want to say it's, it, it's critical to my message today and what I have to say about this text. First of all, David sees a woman bathing. At first, we are scandalized by this statement, right? He's seeing someone take a bath. It makes us think that Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, is showing off. But two things are important to understand here. Is at first, the author is just teasing this bath and to start off with. But he's doing this to try to help us understand how, how dark and evil David's sin was. First, think about the geography there in Jerusalem, the layout of the land. I think we may have something on the screen to throw up for you. This ancient city of David, which is now under the city, um, here's basically how it went. The city started at the top of the mountain. The palace was near the top of the mountain, Mount Moriah, okay, Mount Zion. The palace was at the top uh, near where the temple would eventually be built, and it went southward down toward the Kidron Valley, southward down a hill, okay, southward toward Bethlehem, down the hill there. Now, this is the layout of the ancient city of David. And the reason I'm showing this is I want to... Uh, you to understand that David is on the roof of the palace and he can see the entire city. The way I was growing up, the, the, the portrait I often had was that Bathsheba was up naked on another rooftop somewhere. That, that's not actually what happened. She was taking a bath probably in a pool or a, a tub somewhere, uh, somewhere where nobody could see except the king on the rooftop. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is important to understand because uh, I think her washing place would have not been far from the palace, and we'll talk about this in a moment. The washing place would have not been far from the palace because her husband was an important, important military person. Okay? And we'll talk about that in a minute. It would have been easy for David to see her without her really intending that. Secondly, the way the author writes this story, in verse 2, the verb used refers to just simple bathing, just taking a bath. But later on in verse 4, the verbal used to describe her washing is actually her consecrating herself. She, the ritual bath. It is obeying the law. It is obe someone obeying God's word. I'm not going to get into explaining the whole clean, unclean thing. But she was doing in verse 4 the whole getting clean. Okay, ritually clean. To, to be ritually impure before God after one has been made ritually unclean. Now, the important thing here to re recognize, and I think the ESV is, uh, there's some translations that don't translate it this way, but the ESV, I think, does a great job of showing you what the author is trying to do, and it is this. He's trying to tell you, and the Hebrew construction of this passage is evidence for this. He is trying to show you in verse 4 what she was doing in verse 2. Now let that sink in for a minute. In verse 2, she was not just taking a bath. She was becoming ritually pure. She was consecrating herself. 
and th- th- this is my opinion, Pat. Not everybody's agreed. Obviously, you can. I grew up. I did not ever hear a preacher say this. It was more of the Bathsheba. You know, she's she's a kind of a show, trying to show off her beauty type stuff. She's prancing about, and I don't believe that's the case. I believe she's innocent, at least you know in this way. Bathsheba was not just bathing; she was going through the ritual cleansing of obeying God. Uh, the further proof you, you think about is, is why would she go and take a ritual bath when she would be unclean until evening? So, but anyway, that's another story. Another thing I want to mention here is the literary allusion back to Genesis. And this is very important. Because in Genesis, this exact phrase about that she was a very beautiful in appearance is also used exactly of Rebecca in Genesis 26. Look at verse 20, uh, Genesis 26 with me. Here's what it says. So Isaac settled in Gerar, or Gerar, however you want to pronounce it. When the men of the place asked about him, about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this, this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, what this tells us and what the author of Samuel wants us to see is that Abimelech is more righteous than David in this situation. Because Abimelech, that's a hard name to say, isn't it? Abimelech, Abimelech showed restraint. Now, it's all, you all say this goes back to Sarah in Genesis 12, right? When, when the Pharaoh takes Sarah and he shows restraint, he doesn't just take her and sleep with her. Takes her and puts her, puts her in his harem. But he just doesn't take her in that moment. Right? And, and this is very important to understand this text. Of, that, that the author wants to see us, us to see how sinful this was. To act on, on, on one's desire like, like that. Abimelech, this Philistine, was more righteous than David in this moment. How sad is it that there are unbelievers out there that live, seemingly anyways, um, live in ways, less impulsive ways, let's say, than we do. They're more restrained than those of us who belong to Christ. And I think more than of all things of this text, that should really, it speaks to me. I don't know if it speaks to you. I mean, God clearly speaking to my heart that I should be ashamed of myself. When at times someone who, like myself, who's been saved by God's grace, acts by my desires, lives according to my desires, that, that, Convicts me. I, I don't know. I hope it does you. 
But that's God speaking to me through his word. I should be ashamed of myself at times that someone like Abimelech is more restrained than me. Believers should behave in a way that reflects our covenant relationship with God. As we continue this story, we see David tried to cover up his sin by committing an even more heinous act. First, David tries to get the husband, Uriah, to sleep with Bathsheba to make him uh, impregnate her, or at least my interpretation, to make him think he impregnated her, try to cover it up. And he actually does this twice, once by encouragement, it doesn't work, and then the next time by alcohol, using alcohol. Um, His plan fails, and David has Uriah sent to the front lines of battle to be killed. Now I want to talk about Uriah for just a moment, because I also think this is another part of the story that I'm like, oh my goodness, Uriah the Hittite. Who were the Hittites? Well, if you think back to Genesis 12, it makes sense, or I'm sorry, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, where Abraham has his co- God makes the covenant with Abraham. They are part of the people groups like the Canaanites who were in the land when the Israelites come out of Egypt. And in Genesis 15, God says these are the, he lists the Hittites among those who are going to be, they're going to kick out of the land, right? They're going to cleanse the land. These are the unbelievers, the pagans, they worship false gods. Now, I want you to really get into your mind who the Hittites were. They were not good people. So what this means is the Hittites, uh, being people who worshipped gods and were defeated and were to be destroyed, you have this man, Uriah, who is in Israel. He's, He's part of God's army now. What this means is that Uriah is a convert to Yahwehism. He, much like, or at least his parents possibly, because his name, he's probably made, his, he or his parents, you have those generations there, I'm just going to say Uriah for the sake of argument, is a convert. He, so much like Ruth the Moabite, who says, your God will be my God. And like Rahab of Jericho, who says, I know your God is going to give you this land, please save me and my family. He has converted to the faith. He's not an Israelite. He's not a child of Abraham, but he's a convert. Not only that, but Uriah is listed in 2 Samuel 23 as one of the honored warriors of Israel. He's like one of the top 30 best fighters for David. Think of what Uriah says in 2 Samuel 11, verse... This is in your, in your handout there. 2 Samuel 11, verse 11. Uriah said to David, David's trying to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. He says, They dwell in tents. Now this sends chills all over me when I read Uriah's statement. A man that David's about to send out to die. My Lord Joab, commander of the military, and the servants of my Lord, talking about David, my king, 
are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then a little later, a few days later, David sends him with a letter in hand. Uriah carries the letter with the command to put him on the front lines to kill him. Makes me think he probably can't read David's writing. Probably can't read the Bible, ancient Hebrew, whatever it was that David, however David wrote, you know, wrote it down. Uriah brings the letter. You know, this makes me think, this statement of faith by Uriah makes me think of Matthew 8, the Roman centurion, when the, our Lord Jesus goes to Capernaum, and, uh, you know, they're full of Israelites in God's covenant there. And the Roman centurion is the one that shows faith. He, he basically, you know, he asked Jesus, he said, I have a servant at home, a paralyzed servant. And my servant, he, I know you can make him well. Jesus wants to go to his house. He says, no, I am not worthy for you to enter into my house. Someone respectful of the law, Jewish law, right? of the law of Moses, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Only speak the word and he'll be healed. Just speak the word. Uriah, that type of faith reminds me, Uriah has that type of faith. Jesus said, I have not found this type of faith, this kind of faith in Israel, about the Roman centurion. And Uriah's words, I mean, he is someone who now follows the Lord, he and Bathsheba, he and his wife, they seem to be keeping the law. They seem to have, have the king, Israel, his pro protecting him. And, 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 and the people of God seems to be a priority for him. David sends him out to die because of David's sin. Oh, no. May it never be that we be people like this. But guess what? Sometimes we're guilty. You ever seen someone who's been church their whole life? Sin against a younger believer. Sin, you know, someone who's supposed to be closer to the Lord. <clears throat> sin against someone who is a young believer. Think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What's, what's the, what is the message there? He's talking about a brother, an immature, a new believer. Romans 8, 8 through 10. Paul says this in Romans 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now I want you to think of David in the context of what Paul says here as I read this. Think of David. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Basically, David did all those things, right? And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. Once we have set our hearts on an object of pleasure, sometimes we, uh, we will not stop at anything to cover it up uh, and sweep it under the rug. David uses his power and influence to hide sin. Can this happen in church? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. <clears throat> now, 
God called him out. That's the thing about it. Not Nathan. Now, next week's sermon will be about this. I don't want to get into that. But God is the one who called David out for his sin. You know, Nathan, and he, he didn't have a clue. God gave Nathan the right message to deliver to David. And some of us now, like David, are going to be called to repentance. Yes, like David, we are part of the covenant family. God's given us his grace, the eternal promises. But we're trying to hide our sin of using others for our own pleasure. Don't get too comfortable. Always be ready and prepared to battle evil desires. Out of our hearts comes forth a multitude of sins and desires. It is very tempting, it's always tempting in this text to go the route of throwing Bathsheba under the bus because these days, you know, that type of character, a woman who flaunts her beauty and on social media in order to gain followers and money, that, that's, very, that's very common in our culture. But in my opinion, that's not Bathsheba. Okay? And she was innocent, in my opinion. She was used and probably full of shame at how the king abused her. And David's participation in the peep show, which was a spiritual bath, was bad enough. But what makes it really bad is that it was a married woman. Someone bound by covenant and contract to another man. God's purpose in creation and its propagation was the covenant between one man and one woman. David had several wives. And although this in itself was wrong and not part of God's creating purposes, God comes to David and confronts him. I want you to think about that. David had taken several wives. He wasn't perfect. But it was at this moment where God decides to confront him. And at some point in time, for a believer, what does the Scripture say? I think it's Hebrews, right? God's going to discipline those he loves. At some point in time, God, if we live this way, if we continue in that sin... God's going to come to you and he's going to discipline you. It's better to repent now rather than later. David, he defiled the marriage bed, a bed between one man and one woman. He has taken something that belongs to another. He has coveted and committed adultery and eventually murder because he's responsible for what happened to Uriah. Now, this reminds me of something else uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I have, I have a, a little text to read here, but I, I want to focus in on verse 18. I just want to read verse 18. Uh, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's what we have to understand about what David uh, did here. He didn't just sin against Bathsheba. He sinned against his own body. When we walk this path, we do what David did. We set aside the covenant promises, God's promises to us, eternal promises. We set them aside and put ourselves and our desires first. Like I said earlier, the good news is that God forgives. God forgives. He stands ready to forgive. But there are consequences to this kind of sin. When we sin against our own body in this way, when we hurt uh, others, when we hurt ourselves, our families, our church, 
David's life is an example to all of us to walk in holiness all our days, to stay close to Jesus, and don't get too comfortable. Amen.